This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. listening to The Clear Spot on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch and you've just heard an unusual rendition of the Doctor Who theme by George Locke aka YouTuber George C. Music in the style of Vangelis. If you like that unusual cover there are all sorts of different versions of the Doctor Who theme by this YouTuber including in the style of Tangerine Dream and in the style of John Carpenter, so go to George C. Music on YouTube to hear different arrangements of this classic piece of music. The most recent episode of Doctor Who broadcast last week, The Power of the Doctor, was the last episode to feature Jodie Whittaker, and the show will be returning next November for its 60th anniversary. However, between now and then, in the 13-month gap between episodes, There are various other Doctor Who products on the market for fans who would like to have more adventures with their favourite Time Lord. These include novels and audio readings released by the BBC, spin-off novels by the likes of Obverse Books, and full-cast audio plays in the style of radio dramas released by Big Finish Productions, and I'll be talking to people involved in all of these various types of spin-offs in this evening's show. 13 months might seem like a long time, but in the 90s there was only one episode of Doctor Who, the feature-length Doctor Who TV movie with Paul McGann, broadcast in 1996 between the show's cancellation in 1989 and its revival in 2005. Although entertaining, well-made and with a standout performance by Paul McGann as the Doctor, the movie garnered a variety of responses at the time, both positive and negative, But negative responses led to the writer of the TV movie, Matthew Jacobs, not engaging with fandom for many years until recently where more positive appraisals of the TV movie have led him to be embraced with fandom. So later in today's show, you're going to hear an interview that I conducted with Matthew Jacobs and director Vanessa Yule about their documentary, Doctor Who Am I?, which is all about Matthew returning to Doctor Who fandom and enjoying the newfound interest in the Doctor Who film from 96. Paul McGann had a welcome small cameo in last week's episode, The Power of the Doctor, and a much more substantial part in the show was a return performance by Janet Fielding, reprising her role of Tegan Javanka, who she played on Doctor Who 
mainly as Peter Davison's companion in the early 80s. So for anyone who would like to hear more adventures with Tegan outside of the classic show, Big Finish Productions have created numerous new audio adventures for the Fifth Doctor, with Janet reprising her role. And I'll be talking to the actress in the second half of today's programme about these various Aral escapades. In the 90s, one of the main ways that fans would be able to enjoy new Doctor Who adventures was in print, first in a series of novels released by Virgin Publishing, and then after the TV movie, a second series of books featuring the Eighth Doctor, published by BBC Books. These latter books introduced new characters and concepts to the Doctor Who universe, including another time traveller called Iris Wildtime, who travels in a TARDIS-like bus, the number 22 from Putney, which is slightly smaller on the inside. And Iris turned up in a number of Doctor Who novels in the late 90s, claiming to be one of the Doctor's paramours, much to his embarrassment. And then the role was played on audio in Big Finish Adventures by Katie Manning, best known for playing the character Joe Grant and later Joe Jones in the TV series opposite John Pertwee. Also in the Doctor Who books in the 90s, a series of voodoo-like Time Lord terrorists called Faction Paradox, who play fast and loose with the rules of time travel, turned up as antagonists and agents of chaos in a number of these stories. Both of these spin-off franchises, Iris Wildtime and Faction Paradox, have featured in a number of novels and short story collections published by Obverse Books. Obverse have also released a number of non-fiction Doctor Who books, The Black Archive, each release of which looks in great depth at a single Doctor Who story, Time's Mosaic, which presents a greater overview of eras of Doctor Who, as well as other ranges tangentially connected to Doctor Who, such as The Adventures of Signor 105, The Boulevard and the City of the Saved, locations first introduced in Faction Paradox titles. To get an idea of how this publishing company started, the various books they've published over the years, and why they explore some of these unusual corners of the Hooniverse, I'm talking to publisher Stuart Douglas about the various obverse books releases, and he's joining me on the phone from Scotland. Well, Obverse Books has been going for about 13 years now, published all sorts of different titles, many of which are connected to Doctor Who, both fiction and non-fiction. But how did it come about to start off with that you kind of founded this publishing company? Well, yeah. <laughs> actually, it was really by way of a bet, um, <laughs> genuinely. Around about 2006, 2007, when the new series had started and the only kind of books we were getting were the, the NSAs, you know, all those uh, the new series, Adventured Hardbacks. Uh, and I, I was constantly on a, on a Doctor Who mailing with Anna Gallifrey Brace, or Outpost Gallifrey at the time, saying, these are rubbish. Um, <laughs> you know, there's some really good writers in there. You know, there's, there's some authors that, that we've read great books from when they were, when they were uh, in the Virgin New Adventures. And so, for obvious reasons, um, all sorts of people said, well, could you do any better? <laughs> And, and, and being Scottish and a bit bullshit, I said, yeah, I could. <laughs> and so I set out to do it. I set, I set out to do the kind of book I wanted to read with the kind of writers I wanted to read. So that's how Obvious really started. Hmm. I mean, it, it's all very well, you know, people saying uh, you could do it better. Was that based on uh, you having had previous publishing experience, having loads of contacts, 
knowing how to set up a company. No, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, none, none of those things. Um, I work in IT. That's my day job. Um, right. I'm a, a software developer. Um, I'd never written a single story in my entire life. I'd never edited a book. Uh, I'd never considered publishing a book. Um, but I did know Paul Mars. Mm. Uh, we'd been friends for, for years. Uh, and he obviously owned Iris Wild Time. So I phoned Paul and I said, can I use Iris Wild Time in a series of books? And will you help me edit it? Because you've edited books before. And he said, yeah, no problem. Uh, you know, basically, that'll be a laugh. Mm. Um, so between us, we wrote on a list of all the authors we liked uh, who had written for Doctor Who before uh, on the basis that if we want to sell any books at all, really, we need to have as much of a Doctor Who link as possible. Mm. Uh, he emailed the ones that he knew. I emailed the ones I knew through just online fandom. Uh, they all came back and said, yeah, we'd love to write something. Mm. Uh, and after that, it was just a case of basically going on the internet and typing in how to publish a book. <laughs> um well and obviously having paul on board helped because you know he had uh, a great reputation and still does uh, as a as a, a terrific doctor who writer um but it's interesting that not only has obverse been uh, a home for his iris wildtime books and various other people um writing stories based on the character but you've attracted um various other kind of franchises for want of a better word various other kind of aspects of the doctor who world whether it's a faction paradox um whether more recently it's been spin-offs from paradise towers i mean i guess once you started doing the iris books other kind of aspects of the doctor who world that were looking for a home i guess kind of turned up in your direction <laughs> yeah there was a kind of weird scope creep uh, sort, <laughs> sort of happened where I was only intending to do one book, and that, and that would be it. And then I really enjoyed doing it, so we did another book, and I think we'd done three Iris books before we did anything else. And I wanted to do something different, so I set up a little range called the Obversal Quarterly. Mm. So what I was intended to be was a sort of magazine-length book, 100 pages or so, uh, four times a year, just on anything I fancied. Um, and because of that, um, Phil Purser-Hallard dropped me a line and said, well, why don't you do Tales of the City, which you've done for which years in a novel for Faction Paradox. So that was one of them. So we did that. It was quite successful. People got in touch and said, why don't you do Faction Paradox? I thought, I might as well drop Lawrence Miles an email and see what he says. He was agreeable. So uh, we started doing that. But it, it wasn't it wasn't planned. There, mm. there was nothing. I didn't sit down and say, well, now we're done, what else can I do? It, was, it, it did, as you say, it just kind of fell in my lap a bit. Hmm. And, and, and then, sorry. No, and, and, and you know, even with that um, anthology, it seemed that you were attracting other kind of fantastic writers as well. Um, I guess it's that all sort of, uh, you know, if you build it, they will come kind of approach that once you've published Very a few much. writers, you know, you get a reputation for doing a good job and other people approach you. Very much so. Um, so, so one of the, the obvious quarterly books we did was called Zenith Lives. So it was Zenith Albino from the Sexton Blake stories. Mm. And so George Mann, who had edited a couple of Sexton Blake anthologies, reprinting uh, old stories for, I think, Rebellion or Titan or something, I dropped him a line and said, you know, would you be interested? And he said, yeah, I would be. And you know who else would be? Michael Moorcock would like to write for that. Mm. So basically, he got in touch with Michael Moorcock, he knew. Uh, Michael Moorcock got in touch with me. He said, I'd love to write new, new Zenith stories. And then he appeared. Uh, took the same rate as everyone else. We know we we don't pay huge amounts of money. We pay everybody, but we don't pay. You know, no one's going to retire and working for Obverse. <laughs> but 
people like Mike Moorcock and Mark Oder, Paul Morris, George Manton, they all they all get paid the exact same as anybody who's who's just come in the door. Mm-hmm. Which makes I think for a a more pleasant experience. There's there's no sense that, that the the big names are, are are too big for the boots, is you know what I mean? Mm, indeed. And I mean, like I said, you publish both these kind of Doctor Who fiction spin-off uh, titles as well as the Doctor Who factual books. For the latter, I guess they fall under kind of fair use and journalistic uh, practice that you can write whatever you want in terms of criticism. Mm-hmm. But have you done anything that's been sort of Doctor Who connected in terms of fiction and thought, oh, we're pushing the envelope too far, the BBC might get worried, or has it always been okay because it's different enough? Uh, well, I've got a couple of back channels into the BBC ah. that I can check to see if they're okay before we publish anything. Nice. But we've also done charity books, which just basically are, you know, all over the IP. <laughs> and again, for the charity books, we've had a sort of a nod and a wink that it's okay to do them so long as we only do them in, in short runs and, and basically it's pre-orders. And we don't keep them hanging about for ages. Mm. So we, we've never had we've never had anybody go in touch and said, "No, you can't do that." Uh, and if we did, obviously we'd have to stop. But uh, no, and for the, for obviously the factual stuff, it's entirely criticism. So we can we can do anything we want, really. And you you mentioned, um, I mean, Paul obviously has, you know, a lot of uh, experience, both as a writer and moving within the world of literature in general, having taught the topic. But someone like um, Phil Purser Hallard, who people may know as a novelist, um, did he take to the project of editing easily or did it kind of, did he need a bit of a hand in order to put on that uh, that hat as a role? (laughs) Do you mean for the Black Archive or for uh, Kills of the City? For the various... Both? Yeah, well, I mean either, both. <laughs> uh, well, well, the Black Archive was initially Phil's idea. Ah. Um, he came to me and said, yeah, I've had this idea, why don't we do... I think I was on a mailing list, he just said in passing, we should do a sort of a 33 and a third, but for Doctor Who. And I dropped my line and said, well, that's a good idea. And we, we kind of then knocked out between us what we ended up doing. But no, he's, he's, he's a natural... Um, He's a very good editor, and it didn't require any assistance from me or from anyone else for either for the fiction editing and for the, the non-fiction. It's been myself and Phil and Paul Simpson um, since the beginning, basically. Mm. And for the these various anthologies, whether it's uh, Tales of the City, whether it's Faction Paradox, whether it's Iris Wildtime, have anyone uh, sent in st- short stories that you thought, I wouldn't have thought of this approach at all. This is, you know, really kind of interesting and challenging and I'm I'm really proud that we're publishing it. Oh god, dozens, dozens of them. Uh, virtually every anthology I've, I've ever published, there's been at, one, at least one story where I've said, oh my god, <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> you know, in, in the last um, Faction Paradox anthology we had, we had a story which entirely told like a Beano comic. Mm. Um, you, you, it would never have crossed my mind to do something which is from the outside looks this kind of gothic teenage angst-ridden sort of science fiction to do it as just a series of 96 panels for the Beano. But it works perfectly. uh, It was brilliant. Uh, So every single book we've had, there's been at least one or two stories which are basically, I thought, were astonishing. Which uh, which book was that in? The Boulevard. Ah. The first volume of The Boulevard. Oh, well, I was going to... I think it's called The Crikey Town Cancellations. Oh, well, I was going to ask you about The Boulevard. That's obviously you... Uh, taking on the role of editor, um, engaging with another kind of aspect of the uh, the Faction Paradox franchise. Um, how did that come about? 
Oh, well, I edited the first, I've edited several fashion titles before, and in the very first one, A Romance in Twelve Parts, ah. there's a story I wrote which is set in the boulevard that I made up for that story, so it was fairly straightforward. <laughs> um, somebody, I can't remember who it was, no, Kelly Hale or somebody got in touch and said it was a really nice idea, we should do an anthology. You know, from there, it's just a case of asking authors again, can anyone think of good stories we can set there? Mm. I do I do like editing. It's a lot easier than writing. <laughs> and obviously, you know, the various kind of um, IPs are going to be targeted at kind of Doctor Who fans who have read the novels, who have enjoyed the audiobooks. But in terms of kind of finding new audiences, um, do you find uh, that people are coming on board because they might know one or two of the writers but aren't necessarily familiar um, with the kind of world that you're setting the stories in? It, it, it's difficult. Mm. Um, for for other genre stuff, so, so we do the, the Gold Archive with Star Trek and the Silver Archive, which is all sorts of different genre TV. Uh, it, a lot of people who buy the Black Archive also buy them. Mm. And a lot of people who buy Faction Paradox also buy Iris, and then they also bought um, the Paradise Towers book we got, and from there they buy the Stephen Wyatt book. But to do... Wholly original fiction has been difficult. I've published two or three original novels, and and they, they don't really get the traction because I think people are really looking for genre television related stuff from Obverse, which is a shame. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I'll keep trying because people do send me really good novels. And it's a shame if they aren't out there somehow. But no, it, it's difficult to get to get crossover between the two sort of sets of readers. Mm. And then the various kind of original characters uh, that have first appeared in Obverse, uh, like Signor 105, um, how does a range like that come about? Oh, because Cody's brilliant, basically. <laughs> Cody Shell, who, who was in the very first Iris book, he, he was the, the one person who just pitched through Gallifrey Base just in the instant messaging system when I announced I was going to do a book, and I was Obverse, and there you go. He sent in a pitch first this masked wrestler who had a, a time-travelling jukebox. Uh, <laughs> and it was brilliant. Uh, and, he, and talking to him, he turned out he was a graphic designer and he's designed virtually all of our covers mm. uh, for, for all of our books. Um, and he's a brilliant writer. Uh, he's very, very funny, very talented, very imaginative. And when he wanted to do a, a spin-off for Senior 105, I, I was absolutely delighted. Again, the first time it appeared was in the Overse Quarterly. We did a, a Senior 105 sort of short story book. And then we did, I think, 10 e-books of mm. novels. Yeah, no, I was very pleased with Senior 105. I think he's a great character. Mm. And you mentioned kind of the look of your books, and some of your ranges do really have uh, incredibly distinct looks to them. The Black Archive, in particular, really stands out when you see it on a shelf. Is that something that you kind of outsource to people like Cody, or does graphic design also kind of feed into your interests when you're thinking about no, it? That, that's all Cody. Right. 100%. Um, Cody, Cody, what I'll do, for the Black Archive, Cody, we just said, can you design a cover that we can use for lots of different books of the same range? And he came back with the, the look and feel we have. But for other books, I'll just say, you know, I quite, I'd quite like to have a, uh, a cover that looks a bit like this. And I'll send them a picture of something from the internet. Or I'll say, these are the characters, what do you think you can do with them? And he'll go away and, and every single time in must be approaching 150 books now. Wow. He's done something really, really interesting with the cover. I don't have ever sent back a cover to him and said, no, I don't think that works. Mm, fantastic. Um, and like I said, you know, you said that all of your short story collections, you know, will have an approach that you found 
uh, you know, really exciting and surprising. Is it the same with the Black Archive as well, when people, you know, are writing uh, about a much-loved Doctor Who story that you sometimes are completely blown away by some of the uh, the insight that they bring to those stories? Certainly, yes. Uh, but I think more often the, the, the surprises when they come across a story that's not very good or is, is <laughs> generally derided by fandom. And somebody will do something, you know, quite fascinating with them. Phil Pasco's book on Time Lash. Mm. You know, it was brilliant. He finds all sorts of things in Time Lash that, from my, you know, teenage memory, were not there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it wasn't a very good story, but he he makes it sufficiently interesting that you go back and watch it. Mm. Yeah, all, all the Black Archives have got something in them that you wouldn't expect. Yeah. So you've you've got these various ranges. There's Iris. There's Faction Paradox. And they're continuing with uh, new titles coming out from time to time. Is it difficult kind of juggling all of these different ranges, thinking we need to have, you know, new titles just to keep people's interest in them? Or because there are um, kind of channels like um, Outpost Gallifrey, where people keep an eye on kind of the book end of the forum, you don't need to worry quite so much about regular output because you know you know, that the fans are out there and if you do bring something out, even if it's delayed or whatever, you know, it will find an audience. Yeah, fans are, are very forgiving, I think. <laughs> um, you know, there have certainly been times when, I, when I've got a bit carried away myself and, you know, decided I want to do 15 books in the next two months. <laughs> commission lots of people and people are sending me things. In and, and, but, but so long as you don't sell them stuff, you're not going, they're not going to get. You know, I think people are, are fairly easy going about these things. If I say a book's going to be released in January, it doesn't come out till October. They don't care as long as I'm not charging them for a book in January. Mm. Um, so we make a point, I don't know if you remember, but maybe 10, 15 years ago when, when the first, these small presses stuff first started in Doctor Who, there was a few slightly dodgy um, companies on the go who were taking lots of pre-orders and then not supplying the book. So we always made a point that I never put a book on pre-order until I physically have a letter, from, uh, an email from the printer saying, we are now going to print your book. So I think fans are fairly, and they do. They hang about. You know, they, they, they check. They, they drop me emails saying, you know, when will this book be out? Is it still on the go? And, and nine times out of ten, it is on the go. It's just been delayed, and they, and they don't mind as long as they get it eventually. Mm. And more recently, as well as doing uh, whatever the print run is that you come up for each title as being kind of a suitable number, you've also started doing reprints uh, via Lulu. Is that because um, American distribution was difficult, or becomes, or is it become, is it because there's eventually a point where you think I don't want to print another hundred copies of this, but if people can order it as print on demand, it means the, the books are always available. Um, it's it's more to do with American distribution. I don't right. really care if there's a hundred copies of a book lying about and it takes eight years to sell the hundred <laughs> copies. They, they just lie in my office. I mean, it's it's no real skin off my nose, and I think. Traditionally published life of printed books are better quality than Lulu books, I think. Mm. But it's very hard to get American distribution. Who any um, stock our books in America? But they take, say, 20 copies of, of each title. Um, and it's still quite expensive for shipping, whereas you get from Lulu, if you're in America or Australia, it's, it's, the, shipping, the shipping is negligible. Mm. And the books are still decent. I mean, they're, they're not terrible quality. Um, I just feel nervous and I don't have any oversight of how they look. Um, so we had a lot, of, a lot of American and Australian customers ask us if we'd do that. So I'm happy to do it. We do it usually about three months after the books come out mm. from Obverse. I'll do a Lulu version. With um, the 60th anniversary uh, of Doctor Who coming next year, 
Have you got any special plans, um, ranges of books, new anthologies that are coming out to celebrate that that you can talk about now, or is it still very hush-hush? I, I do have some stuff planned, but there's nothing I can talk about, unfortunately, <laughs> because we haven't actually signed contracts yet. Ah. I mean, it, it did amuse me that with the Black Archive, for example, I wonder if you reserve certain numbers for certain books because they have a kind of resonance to them. So number 25 was about uh, Doctor Who, the TV movie, which feels like a nicely celebratory number. And now 63, which seems to echo 1963, is the first uh, anthology Black Archive you've done with different writers all approaching an episode of Flux. So is there at least a temptation there? Yeah, no, yes, I'm glad somebody's noticed. Oh, um, right. <laughs> so 25 is a TV movie, 50 was Day of the Doctor, we've got mm. something planned for 63 flux, we've got something planned for 75 and something planned for 100, at which point we might stop because that's 2029, I think. So. Wow. That would be quite a lot of books. <laughs> and, you know, with the kind of Beano chapter that you mentioned in the Boulevard, is that a one-off or might you start actually doing kind of graphic novels as well? No, I'm not going to do graphic novels. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of graphic novels. I mean, I'm, sure that I'm sure they're brilliant and people love them. <laughs> just purely as, as a reader. Um, once you get away from Alan Moore and Grant Morrison, I'm, I'm kind of a little bit sort of... Okay. So it's, it's not a thing I'm interested enough in to take the time to learn how to do it properly from a printing point of view. And also, there's already cutaway comics. There's no need for all this to do graphic novels when there's something that good out there already. Mm. So for hypothetically a more casual uh, Doctor Who fan who might have heard of some of these characters but hasn't read an Iris novel or a short story collection or hasn't read a Faction Paradox novel or short story collection are there any kind of jumping on points that you would recommend for new readers? For, for both the Iris and the Faction you can jump on anywhere mm. all the books are, are standalone um, but one thing I, I don't really like about genre series is the way they tie them all in, and you have to read six to understand seven. Um, so I've made a point of all the faction novels stand alone, none of them are tied into the rest of the mythos in any way, um, except for you know the, the very broad, you know, it's about a time war and there's this great houses and that sort of thing. And the same with Iris. Um, so no, just start at the beginning, read the first one. Um, if you, if you like the first one, you'll like the tenth one, I suspect. Um, I would I wouldn't say that you'd necessarily have to read any in particular. No. The first two anthologies are great. I as well in the Celestial Omnibus and uh, A Romance in Twelve Parts. They give you a nice taster of, of what the two series are about. Great. Well, excellent. Thank you, Alex. It was great to speak to you. For more info about Obverse Books, who publish various Doctor Who-related titles, including The Adventures of Iris Wildtime, originally created by Paul Mars, various novels about Faction Paradox, the vaguely Time Lord-related Agents of Chaos, who are featured in not only their own range, but also the spin-off ranges The City of the Saved and The Boulevard, and various factual books about Doctor Who, such as The Black Archive and Times Mosaic, can be found on their website, obversebooks.com. That's O-B-V-E-R-S-E books.com. Obverse Books have been publishing their titles for 13 years. Doubling that number, going back 26 years, we find the first appearance of the Eighth Doctor as played by Paul McGann on TV in the one-off TV movie that was aired in May that year. The writer of that film had worked on a number of successful genre titles, such as the TV series The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, 
and the creepy British fantasy movie Paperhouse, but with his script for the 1996 Doctor Who revival, he split fandom, many of which were very happy to see the Eighth Doctor come along in the form of Paul McGann, but others were less pleased with some of the choices made in the film, such as making the Doctor half-human and shock horror giving him his first kiss with his assistant in the movie, played by Daphne Ashbrook. In the years since, though, fandom has come to reappraise the 96 film, with new generations of fans coming to love the 8th Doctor as played by Paul McGann, not only because of the 96 movie, but because of his cameos in more recent episodes, such as The Time of the Doctor and The Power of the Doctor, as well as numerous adventures made by Big Finish Productions. Jacobs himself has started to engage with fandom again, and a new documentary, Doctor Who Am I?, directed by Vanessa Yule, follows Jacobs as he goes to various fan events around the world and meets Doctor Who fans, curious to know more about how he came to write a new adventure for the Time Lord in the mid-90s. I caught up with Matthew Jacobs and Vanessa Yule with the UK premiere of the film at the London International Sci-Fi and Fantastic Film Festival, Sci-Fi London, earlier this year, and my Q&A with the pair was recorded in front of a live audience, so you'll have to forgive the background noise. There's loads of interest in fandom these days, there's loads of interest in how creators react to the fans that they meet. Um, but for the two of you, I mean, how did this project come about? Um, was it that you were starting to now get invites and you felt enough time has passed, and not only that, I want to document my experience doing this? It started out as a meeting for coffee, and we were catching up, and then Matthew was telling me this story about how he was getting invited to conventions, and, and sort of... Yeah, I mean, Vanessa and I have worked together on, on other movies previous, uh, Your Good Friend and Bar America, and, um, and then I'd never told her that I'd done Doctor Who huh. or anything like that. And I, so, yeah, I had no idea. No idea. I was like, I knew Tom Baker, and then Matthew had written, mentioned something about writing the Doctor. I was mind blown, absolutely mind blown. So I was invited to these weird conventions, and I kind of didn't really want to go because I'd moved on from the whole thing. And mm. Vanessa said, "Well, actually, there's a story there." Mm. Um, and then we came up with this Doctor Who reminds a story about identity and about the way in which you discover yourself through stories. Mm. Um, and and then we started filming. I thought it was just going to be a weekend. And, uh, right, so we filmed at Gallifrey One over the weekend, and Matt's like, yeah, we're going to have this movie done in a year, or like in a few few months we'll be finished. I was like, no, Matt, sorry, we have to keep filming. <laughs> seven years later. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's mainly 2015, 2016, when we did the shooting, and then we finally pulled in um, Eric Roberts and, and uh, so we did stuff with him and then a few other people and sort of built it, built it up and really the journey is um, uh, the journey is kind of realizing I'm part of a family mm. whereas I really didn't at the beginning and it's that learning about what fandom is I had no idea at the beginning I'm really quite a shitty person <laughs> really quite nasty I'm threatening to sort of draw penises on people's <laughs> precious things and, and it's really not good and then toward the end I've become I, I feel like and I feel now I really genuinely have a family of, of fans and it's lovely mm -hmm. 
Well, I mean, and it's also fascinating to watch this film projected because it seems like a reflection of a reflection that you're there doing a Q&A about Doctor Who on stage and then we've watched I'm doing a Q&A about yes. you in a film doing a Q&A on stage. So it's, yes, it's, it's quite interesting, this whole kind of like self-reflective uh, aspect to Phantom that we're all interested in every kind of aspect of this, uh, you know, kind of um, way of life. I mean, I guess, you know, as you said, uh, to use a horrible term that everyone uses, there was a journey for you uh, in, in making this. But like you said, you know, at first you're kind of aggressive and then realize that actually you're part of this uh, phenomenon. Part, and of then, a fa- part of a family. And really, yeah. the, the fans, uh, uh, it's not really, a, that bit I say in the middle, where it's not mm. really about the show. I think fandom is about a community and they people loving to sort of meet together and they all know each other. It's, you know, the Doctor Who circus of fans, really, they go from city to city. They'll be in Chicago, they'll be in Long Island, they'll be in Los Angeles, they'll be in different places. But it's about 3,000 people. And most of you who've been in like a secondary school or something like that, you, can, you know the feeling of 3,000 people. You can recognize them as they mm-hmm. come down. You get to know them. So it's actually a beautiful community. And then that's just the tip of the iceberg, because in America there's now about 5 million people who are sort of declared, you know, Facebook followers and things like that. It's a, it's a massive fa- declared fandom that mm. I really do believe kept the Doctor alive during, mm. those, during those wilderness years. Mm. And, you know, and, and then when we made the TV movie, we've got, we've got Jeffy Sachs here, who oh, wow. directed the TV movie. <laughs> uh, good job. <laughs> uh, yeah. and, and for you, Vanessa, I mean, as well, this is kind of like an anthropological project because it's kind of an aspect of humanity that not a lot of people know about. But then, you know, you go into, uh, you know, a massive fan convention and you're kind of discovering, you know, how people act in that environment, what people are like, and, and trying to film them as a kind of objective observer. Well, yes. I mean, I didn't know anything about the Doctor Who fandom in America at all. And they're just lovely, wonderful people, as you can see, and very accepting. And it was, um, you know, Matthew always thought it was going to be the documentary was just about the American fans. But having known Matthew for a long time, he's just like, you know, funny and wonderful, has screen presence and a wonderful story. So it took a while to sort of make him be okay with his story actually coming through as mm. well. I mean, we're co-directing, we did this all together, but it was also just like, sort of like the shift in mentality for him to be like, okay, bringing it to the table, for sure. Yeah. Well, Vanessa edited it, you know, and in a documentary like this, um, the editing is, is, is the part where you find the story mm. because, because it's, you're writing it in the cutting um, uh, and so it, so, so it really wasn't me. Do you know what I mean? It didn't feel like that. Like that. It's like you would show me things. I would look at them, and obviously, we we then I would then come back with ideas, and then you know what I mean. But v- Vanessa had made a couple of documentaries previous. Beautiful one, American Contradiction, which you can find online, which is which is really good. It's a short film. Mm. And so there's the yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons why uh, you seem to be resistant to kind of engaging with Doctor Who fandom is because uh, the film has kind of different reactions, some positive and some negative. Yes. So I was kind of amused in the movie 
where uh, the showrunner of late 1980s Doctor Who, Andrew Cartmel, invites you to get dinner and you didn't look best pleased uh, at that okay. suggestion. Well, Andrew did sign the release um, because I was worried when we were cutting it that this might, it might look very dismissive toward him. Um, but Andrew has got a great sense of humour and, and I've done about two other conventions with him since and I said... Well, I'm right, I'm next to you when I say there are failed producers and all of that, Jeff. And I'm standing next to you, and, and and this is maybe not very good, but in fact, Andrew, it's me who looks like the dickhead, not you. Um, uh, and so he's kind of okay with that, I think. Yeah. Um, and obviously, one of the most moving moments is when you're showing us and you're showing Vanessa the footage that you've shot of uh, Paul McGann's birthday cake on your phone where you know oh, you right. actually start crying. That's an incredibly powerful moment. I mean, can you talk what was kind of going on there? Was it just, you know, the intensity of fandom that was all of a sudden you realized, wow, this is something well, else? Well, I mean, it, there was Paul's birthday party and Matt was expressing um, his concern because later he was going to have to do the gunfighters panel. So I was kind of like, all right, hold that thought, Matt. We're going upstairs having an interview. You have 10 minutes. Come up in 10 minutes. And so then that's why Matthew was down there filming. And when he came up, um, we didn't know what to expect. I mean, I was shocked as well. I was going to, like, patting myself down, looking for a Kleenex, being like, oh, my gosh, what, what do I do? And then that Matt was just sort of like, no, just let me. Well, I think it was more... The, a genuine, it's less of a sadness thing. Mm. It was the, the feeling was really a relief, a weird thing where I realize it's, you get overwhelmed your, by your feelings sometimes when you realize that you are the thing you didn't think you were. Mm. When you realize that you, I realized I, I was a fan and I am a fan and that was there. And then the rest of it is like John Gielgud. But also, I mean, I guess, you know, as kind of co-director and subject, you're really opening up your vulnerability, you know, to everyone who's ever going to watch this, which I guess must be an unusual experience to someone who's previously written kind of emotions for fictional characters that you themselves, you yourself then actually become, you know, I guess, you know, it's a question for both of you, you know, that must be a very kind of strange and intense experience. Well, Well, I mean, that was the part of the process, I think, uh, in the editing room, mm. you know, showing that there are things that, it, showing Matthew's journey and getting to that point, you have to be with him there. So sort of crafting the story, getting little bits of his backstory to where you you feel his, um, you feel him genuinely, and he, you know, um, and I don't know if you want to yeah. add to that. So well, I think. I mean, the, the hesitation in my mind is I, I showed uh, the idea, I showed a trailer to a producer I worked for, Fred Fuchs, who worked at Zoetrope, and he looked at it and he said, what are you doing, Matthew? Nobody's interested in you. <laughs> Nobody will come and see this. If nobody cares. Stop it. Um, and it was that, it was that, kind of, that kind of reaction. And then, indeed, we cut a trailer, which we took to Comic-Con, and we were both sitting there really going, nobody's interested in this. <laughs> and, but, and then, but it was Vanessa's determination that there really is a, an identifiable story there. Mm. And we found in showing it and testing it out with 
fans that, uh, that they go, yes, that's our experience as well. There's always been that moment when we've gone, oh yes, this is this this has helped me move on. And Paul talks about that mm-hmm. a lot. And I think as a as a filmmaker, quite often you don't realise the impact that the stories have. Mm. Um, and I think this it, that's what this journey has really been about. And obviously, the Dalek Baby is cinema gold. <laughs> <laughs> is Dalek Baby great? <laughs> How many hours did you shoot in total before editing it down? Wow, that's probably about a month's worth. No, of hours of shooting. Oh, hours yeah, of footage. Sorry, yeah. Hours, sorry, it's days of shooting. Um, man, it's probably around eighty. Wow, eighty hours. Eighty. Yeah. Because we went down, we went down other rabbit holes. It's like I thought we should ask people. We were thinking, what's a question that we should ask everybody? Who is the doctor of you? That's right. So that became the thing that we were asking everybody. And of course, it's not. You were asking everybody, and I kept thinking, like, gosh, but how do we get Matt in front of the camera again? Okay, Matt, give us those gems. Come on, Matt. (laughs) Funny. Mm, Nice. Um, Does anyone in the audience. So I'm an aspiring documentary filmmaker. I honestly love that film. All the writers, all the pacing, loved it. And if there's anything I, w- I want to try and figure out is just the start process. Hmm. Well, I mean, we started out the project, we were always co-directing, co-producing. So when we were filming it, we were both just sort of in it, right? So we're filming, we're like, what is the story? We don't know what the story is. And so then in the cutting room, it started, it's overwhelming. When you have all of this footage, you're like, what do I do? Um, breaking it down. And then it was started making little vignettes. We were following different characters breaking it down, like we were following uh, Ken D, we followed uh, Daphne Ashbrook, and we made these little stories. And then I did a story, little journey, Matthew's journey. And then slowly, we, it's, you just have to put things in a timeline. That's, that's it. You just got to start somewhere. And then we just whittled it down. Um, I like how Matthew did it where we broke it into four reels, so kind of like where our acts are where the sort of the first act, second, first, first act, second act sort of and thing. Third, you know, second act divided. Trying to work out what the mid. Trying to once you know what your middle is, what you know where the turn is, where the audience is getting something that they didn't bargain on getting mm. in that midpoint, as it were, which is so important. And if you've got your ending, those are the two things that we really the setup. You can play back and forth with, but the setup's got to support the middle. And then it's always cutting and recutting, going back to the footage, back to the footage. But um, you'll get there. You do. You get to the end. And it's such a relief. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody else? Yeah? Did you have anyone object to filming? In other words, you were entering into their world, their convention. Did you have anyone say, don't film me? Yes, we did. Or were they quite happy for you to... There was one woman. The world. There were a couple of people who were uh, actually who attended the, um, the the gunfighters panel, who were very vehement about not being filmed. Mm-hmm. They came, you don't remember that. There you go. But um, <laughs> maybe they're very few. Yes. <laughs> um, but but for the most part, you have a you have a blanket clearance. So when people attend the convention, they, the if the convention has done a deal with with one filming unit. That you know that that's cleared, um, and that's 
that was kind of the deal because I when when Sean con finally contacted me to sort of come and do a big convention, um, I, I said, well, you don't have to pay me, you don't have to do anything, you just have to give me an extra couple of rooms for the crew and clearance, and that was kind of the deal. And the same thing with Ken Deep, um, and then obviously you get people's release, you try and get the release before you film. And then you have a discussion. And then obviously we did show, most of the people who are in the film have seen it. So they know, they know what it is. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah? In the first sequence when you're in the archive, you pick up the Generations book, you're quite dismissive of Philip Scal's opinions. Yeah, when you meet him, there's a, a slightly warm relationship. Is that more professional? Or have you just mellowed in what you thought about? What I was being polite. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I'm not going to walk into the room and say, Philip, you, you, you just... In the book, he says, he says, oh, Matthew had problems with his father, that kind of thing. But he resolved these problems at going to his father's deathbed. Um, I was nowhere near my dad's deathbed. Do you know what I mean? So he'd made up all this this thing, which which sort of made me pissed off, to be honest. Um, but you know, it's 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 mythology, I suppose. So in a way, this um, does that. But we don't go in. I don't go into detail. I don't. I try not to go into detail of the rest of my family, really, because it's. You know, it's unfair to put people on film who who, who you have anything. But I do talk about. Obviously, I talk about Anne, um, who's who's my mother, and I talk about Anthony, um, and 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 you know, and the the film is about how we regenerate, and the most natural form of regeneration is that. But yes, no, I get on quite well with Philip, to be quite honest. He's 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 fine. <laughs> <laughs> of course, the irony is. Uh, <laughs> I just stuck myself a hole in it. <laughs> 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 oh, he was wonderful. He was absolutely wonderful when we met him. Yes, he was. He was great. He was totally up for it, and he was totally up for the reality TV thing, wasn't he? Well, that's what I was going to say. The irony is that you're both famous for the Doctor Who movie. Then he went into reality television, documenting people's unusual lives, and here you are making a film about unusual people's lives. So you've ended up doing the same thing in a way. Yes, it's a good, good point. Mm. Yeah. 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 Has it actually, has making the documentary helped you sort of come to terms with um, what you seem to think the movie was in terms of it was like a sort of failure or that it was heavily criticised, whereas really it was a success? Yes, it's, it's yeah. a really good question. Um, I mean, people's attitude toward the movie has shifted. Um, and now it is now it's really a loved piece, which I which I'm, you know, is the Guardian did something uh, yesterday where the the writer who'd done the who'd done the um, article was very upset because the Guardian put a headline <laughs> that that kind of indicated that fandom was unhappy about the film, and they really aren't anymore. Um, uh, but there was, certainly was a, a a part a part of. I mean, I like the thing that Philip says. This is where I really like Philip. You know, is he, he, he? You know, when I said I think the script was always ripped apart. Nothing else on the show is ripped apart. You know, it's like Jeffrey's work was revered and loved. It looked better than anything. Paul's work was great. Everything he said was fantastic. <laughs> but the writing is shit. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was. It was like that was what that was like. So when I told 
um, Philip that he said that happens all the time and he's right I think the writers get get short shrift on Doctor Who because the fandom genuinely believes as a fan you believe that you could tell the story better because you're so invested <laughs> in it um, uh, and so I mean what Chris Chibnall is going through must be really hard for, mm. I mean I thought I had a hard but he's going to have he's going to be carrying that chip around on his shoulder for a while mm. yeah. anybody else no, I mean, you know, one thing that, that surprised me that didn't come up in the film is, you know, a lot of controversy uh, has been around the movie, good and bad opinions. But one of the kind of received things about the reasons why it was, in inverted commas, a failure was because it was programmed against an incredibly popular episode of Roseanne. Yeah. And so that was something absolutely out of your control. And so perhaps you never should have taken some of these things to heart. Yeah, we could have gone into that in detail because there's, you know, the truth of it is there was a choice between Sliders, which was a show that Universal had and they mm. understood, mm. And, and Doctor Who, which they didn't understand. Universal, Fox were quite happy, in theory, to go ahead. The BBC mm. were non-committal, I think, at that point. Um, but, but, but they were choosing between something they understood and they didn't understand. The numbers was not were not. It, it, it was important, but you know, if it had been massive numbers, then that would have, you know, spoken immediately. Mm. But um, yes, we're up against. But that's always the case. That's just the reality of it, and it's the reality of a pilot that it won't get picked up for the most part. Mm. Um, and this was a backdoor pilot. Yeah. yeah. But here you are making a movie about it, so you know. <laughs> after all these years, at least oh, <laughs> you know yeah. it has some kind of redemptive, cathartic, you know, experience. Well, listen, I guess. Thank you for. Sh I mean, really, yeah. thanks to um, you know Louis and Sci-Fi London for, for for showing this film because, like Louis was saying, people tend to look at it and they go, "What?" <laughs> um, and but he actually look, looked it through and thought there might. It might be worth putting up on the screen for us. It's just fabulous to see it on the screen with an audience. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking about it and showing your movie. Thank, thank you, you very much. For more info about the documentary Doctor Who Am I, directed by Vanessa Yule, about Matthew Jacobs' interest in fandom having written the Doctor Who movie in 1996, please go to facebook.com stroke Doctor Who Am I. And Doctor Who Am I is next screening at various branches of the Light Cinema on Monday the 7th of November. Light Cinemas can be found across the country in such locations as Adelston, Banbury, Bolton, Bradford, Cambridge, Sheffield, Sittingbourne, Stockport, Thetford, Walsall and Risbeach. And you can find more info about the light chain of cinemas by going to thelight.co.uk. Doctor Who Am I is also screening at the Midlands Arts Centre on Sunday the 13th of November and is available on DVD, Blu-ray and video on demand on November the 7th and is well worth a watch. At the moment, we're at the start of another hiatus between episodes of Doctor Who, with 13 months between last week's episode, The Power of the Doctor, and the 60th anniversary episode, which will screen around the 23rd of November, 2023. And to keep fans happy who are missing adventures of their favourite Time Lord, 
there are various companies who do spin-off media featuring the character and supporting cast. Earlier in today's show, I spoke to Stuart Douglas, the publisher of Obverse Books, who do various titles based on the Time Lords' expanded Hooniverse, but new adventures featuring the original actors and cast of Doctor Who from the 1970s, 80s and later, have been made by Big Finish Productions since the early 2000s, as well as new adventures with Tom Baker, Colin Baker, Sylvester McCoy, Paul McGann, Christopher Eccleston, John Hurt and David Tennant. Big Finish have, needless to say, also a number of new radio-style adventures for the fifth Doctor, Peter Davison, with all of his TV companions joining him in these new additions to the canon. One actress who is in nearly every episode of Peter Davison's tenure as the Doctor, and indeed became a companion in Tom Baker's last story, is Janet Fielding, who most recently reprised the part of Tegan in the last Jodie Whittaker episode, The Power of the Doctor, but has also played the part in numerous Big Finish plays. The two most recent episodes featuring Peter Davison and Janet Fielding were a pair of box sets called Doctor Who 40, celebrating the 40th anniversary of Peter Davison's first full episode in 1982. In these two box sets, we hear three stories set at different periods within the Fifth Doctor's timeline, with Janet accompanying the Fifth Doctor as his trusted companion Tegan in these various moments in his long life. To find out more about these two celebratory box sets, I caught up with Janet via Zoom earlier in the month to talk about her various travails as the time-travelling Antipodean air hostess who travels in the TARDIS. And before you hear my interview with Janet, here's a flavour of the most recent Fifth Doctor box set, 40, Volume 2. So you're finally awake. Brigadier. As ever, I find you in the most surprising places. Oh, are you the lady who's going to turn us into monsters? We saw shadows, something nebulous, nefarious. Sit still. The more you struggle, the more it hurts. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. Earth is under attack. Open fire! You shot at us. We shoot at you. An Auton invasion. And that's not our only problem. Notice something about these army tents. Did you crash? Did you land here by mistake? This has all been planned. Turlo! Keegan! Run! Don't! And so it begins. What have you done? Your most recent Big Finish release has been two box sets called 40, which have been celebrating 40 years of the Fifth Doctor, but also, it occurred to me, 40 years of Tegan as well, because the end of your tenure was around the same time. So actually, because you're in all three adventures in the two box sets, it feels as much a celebration of your relationship with the Doctor as it is the Doctor himself. Well, I started in 1980, mm. I finished in 1983. Huh. My first episode went out in 1981. Well, I'm, I'm not going to accuse Big Finish of being unable to do their sums. Anyway, 40 years, it just seems impossible, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
But I do feel that these two recent box sets are a really nice kind of encapsulation of yours and Peter's kind of whole time as Doctor and Companion. One of the stories is set right at the beginning with Adric as well on board the TARDIS. The second one is just you and Nyssa. And then the third one is you, Nyssa and Turlo. So it's nice that actually just in this kind of series of 12 episodes, these three adventures, you know, it feels like a kind of a survey, an overview of the whole of your kind of adventures together. Yeah, indeed. That Yeah, it does, I guess. It was just such a bummer that we had to record these during COVID. So we did them remotely from home. You know, I can see myself at the end of my hallway because the, the, you know, the place where I can, I can get sort of reasonable soundproofing is at the end of my hallway under a sort of loads of duvets and things. I create this cabin. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And then, you know, you're sweating about the technical problems because, you know, on one of them, I think it was 41, I think I had problems with my mic. Huh. And my mic stopped working. Would that be right? Anyway, so that was a bit of a nightmare. You know, you always you're always sweating the the, the tech problems mm. because my my internet wasn't as reliable as it might be. <laughs> and, uh, well, as anybody's these days. So yeah, it was. Um, and you know, you look at this amazing these amazing casts because the the guest actors are just phenomenal. Mm. Oh bloody hell! You know. I really wanted to meet Barbara Flynn, you know, Christopher Timothy, Belinda Lang, you know. John Culture I'd already met because he'd come in and done an earlier one and he's he's just lovely. He's such a nice man. So bloody good. I mean, he's fantastic, <laughs> isn't he? He really he is. fantastic. I'm a huge Dead Ringers fan. Mm. So that was lovely. Were you able to see each other when you did it at least? Was it like this? Did you have the video on at the same time? No, you don't. Right. Because you're more concerned with the sound and the sound quality. So if you're watching, you know, you're reading, you're doing a script. You've got a script in front of you. You're concentrating on that. And then you're looking at the at what's happening with the recording line. And, you know, are you recording? Because you've got to do backup recordings as well. And, mm. and you think, oh, my God, you know. But I suppose then, I mean when you're acting opposite John and he's playing three different characters and you can't see him, does that add an additional friss on? We think, oh my goodness, is that Anthony or is that John? Or is that uh, the Brigadier or is that John? <laughs> no, I mean, because he's so on the voice. Mm. Come on, he's, you know, he's fabulous at impersonation. So there's never any lack of clarity mm. on, that, on that score. And as an actor, is that, a weird experience at all that someone who you acted against in the 1980s who's no longer with us is being reincarnated through John's voice is it at all spooky or is it just actually quite nice as an actor that it gives you that chance to sort of have that relationship again within a story I don't know it's not it's not weird anymore mm. you know what I mean it's too much time has elapsed yeah I think it might have been at the time if I'd been doing the doc the these um, audio dramas immediately after his death. Mm. But it's now, if I just bring up Anthony Ainley on, on Google, I'll be able to see when he did when he did die. I'm not sure, early 90s maybe? 2004. Right, okay. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it is, a, it's nearly 20 years ago. So it's, 
you know, you've had a you've had a long time to adjust. Yeah. And he's so good. Mm, definitely. Seamless. Obviously, you've done numerous adventures now with Big Finish that have been set in different eras during your time as Tegan. But like I said, with this box set, it feels like it's covering the whole kind of tenure within 12 episodes. Do you find that you're adjusting your performance, thinking of when you first started playing the character and then sort of like in the middle of that relationship and then towards the end? Does that come out in the script or do you have to sort of inject those different time periods into the performance? I go by what's in the script. <laughs> sure. Generally speaking. Unless I disagree with something in the script and I go, no, Tegan wouldn't do that. That's not true to her character. Hmm. That rarely happens. So really what I'm doing is I'm following what I have in front of me. Most of my stories are in a never-never land. So, yes, you know, the thing is we're travelling through time and space. Mm. So chronologically we do discuss that. Mm. So our producer David, David Richardson, will say, oh, no, this is after you did X and before you did Y and, you know, Adric has gone and blah, blah, blah. But generally speaking... The relationship that's in the script is very good because you know it's been script edited mm. properly. You know, they big finish have done a good job on, on, on editing the scripts, and and consequently it, it all makes sense. So you go by what's there on the page. You can yeah. you know you can trust, I guess what I'm saying is you can trust what's there on the page. Mm. And I suppose as you're performing it, you think, oh, okay, this is a period of time where perhaps Tegan isn't as trusted as much and then sort of pitch the performance as you go along. And then if you realise actually this is a time when the Doctor and Tegan are really close, you can maybe add a little bit of extra warmth, uh, for want of a better word, you know, to those encounters. Yeah, well, I mean, Tegan was, from very early on, fond of the Doctor. Mm. She just wasn't going to take any nonsense. <laughs> you know, it would be like having, you know, the interesting thing is that there's a there's a dynamic between Peter and I anyway because Peter Peter was the only boy with three sisters hmm. and I was the only girl with three brothers and so there's a kind of that kind of sibling element of it mm. in the relationship because there certainly was no hanky panky in the TARDIS back in my day <laughs> and so there was no question of it being anything other than a um, frater you know, a, a, a platonic relationship. Mm. And therefore, what kind of platonic relationship would you go for? And I think Tegan comes into the TARDIS in a way, you know, let's be honest, if it weren't for the Doctor and the, and the Master pursuing the Doctor, then, you know, Tegan's aunt wouldn't have died and, you know, mm. blah, blah, blah. So she's always got that at the back of her mind. Mm. Um, she's upset with the doctor because it's his fault that, in a way, that, that Adric dies. Mm. You know, you get involved with travelling in this weird police box and you end up killing people. Mm. Or people end up being killed. Sure. You don't end up killing people, but people end up being killed. Mm. And that's quite a difficult, I think, quite a difficult uh, thing to come to terms with. Yeah. And I feel that that's something actually that many of the audio plays have really dealt with on, I mean, you know, people 
but fairly or unfairly accused the TV show of not having as much emotion in it back in the day. But certainly these audio plays feel that on a number of occasions, uh, the three of you have dealt with the idea of Adric's death in kind of more nuance and with more depth, you know, in these additional stories, which I guess must be really nice as an actor that it's given you the opportunity to, you know, add these additional scenes where the characters do get to deal with those kind of issues in more depth. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And the thing is, T, I don't like it. I, I did get one script once where it was early on and whoever had written it, and I thought, Tegan was never unkind. Mm. She may have been bolshy and assertive and, you know, a bit pugnacious, <laughs> but um, she wasn't unkind. And, and this person had written the script and that he'd given her stuff to do which was unkind. Okay. And he hadn't observed the difference between that and the way that... And I, I did say, you know, I go, actually, that's kind of... She's never been like that. That's not true to how that character sits in the, you know, in the relationship. Mm. And, I mean, another aspect of these recent releases that I thought was really nice is that there's a line that the Doctor has that's something like, you're my glorious anchor, Tegan. And I thought it was just nice that there was that, that kind of moment of appreciation, you know, however brief, to comment on actually their friendship is important. Yes, of course. But, you know, as you do with people that you often share, you know, share digs with or whatever, you know, you know yourself, you've got You've got friends that you, you're you fond of, but bloody hell, they sometimes really get on your wick. <laughs> you know? And you just think, oh, would you just please stop? <laughs> and I think that cuts both ways between them. And it's just, it, it, it's a, it makes for an interesting dynamic. Mm. And, well, I, uh, and, and Peter and I, as you probably have heard, do take the mickey out of each other <laughs> all the time. And not so much now because we don't record at Moat Studios anymore, alas, because um, we miss the lunches. And, uh, yeah, and we would be in our sound booths and with Sarah in between to, to sort of <laughs> referee. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But it's interesting as well that this, the final story of the trilogy, The Auton Infinity, is set towards the end of Tegan's time and you get the impression that she's beginning to feel like her time in the TARDIS is coming to an end. So, you know, again, it's nice to think about, you know, you're talking about when you share digs with someone that there are ups and downs, that again, you have a chance to explore that part of her life thinking, oh, she was beginning to think maybe I will move on and, you know, these stories are starting to come to an end. Yeah, you know, all good things, you know, come to an end. And things we don't, you know, life isn't a static thing. Mm. It's a dynamic thing. And you get to the point where you have to move on. Mm. You know, what, do, what else does she want out of life? Mm. And interestingly, the very first play that you did for Big Finish, uh, The Gathering, 16 years ago, was kind of Tegan's last story, as it were, at that time. And the doctor catches up with her after she's kind of left him and sees that she has got on with her life. 
And it was interesting that as a reintroduction to the character after a number of years, you started off with what could have been your final story. Was that part of the attraction when Big Finish got in touch and said, will you come back? No, what happened was I had all, I, I'd always said, no, I wouldn't do them. And then I was in Australia and I ran into Gary Russell at the Span Convention in Sydney and he talked me into it, into doing one. And I said, okay, I'll do one, but only one. And it was his last story. And that's mm. why it was written the way it was. Mm. And then I did that one and I thought, gee, that, that was quite fun, really. <laughs> well, if they ask me, I will do more. Nice. And I did, as you know. Absolutely, many, many in between. But in a way, it's nice to actually do the last story first. And I mean, this maybe perhaps is slightly a box ticking exercise for one of a better phrase, but I think... I don't die in the story, do I? No, spoilers. <laughs> I know it's been 16 years. No, but it's kind of, it's poignant and it's slightly tragic. But just in a way that, you know, fans kind of like the biggest holes to be filled. And it's like we never knew what happened to Tegan next. So in a way, by starting off with what happened to Tegan next, it kind of scratches that itch. And then you can do all of the additional stories in between. Yeah. Yes, that's true, actually. <laughs> so when you appear in these plays, obviously there are different kind of uh, companions that you travel with. Big Finish have done stories where Adric has come back and they've done stories where Turlo comes back. They've done stories where it's just you and Nyssa as the companions. But, it, but I but don't it, think it's about people coming back. I mean, in, the, in these stories, we jump all over the place within the Doctor's timeline. Yeah. And, and that's integral to the story. Mm. But if you, if you follow through the logic, the logic is that actually what happens is that we, the stories occur at different times in the character's timeline. Of course. But I mean, what I was going to ask was all of those different combinations of companion dynamics means, I guess, you have a slightly different flavour of performance because when Adric's in the TARDIS, Tegan might act in a certain way. When Tolo's in the TARDIS, she might act in a different way. Do you enjoy bouncing back and forth between those eras? Because it does mean there's a slightly different dynamic uh, when you're performing the script. Yeah, it's nice to get something slightly different, you know, to do. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, I do. Mm. And then, interestingly, in recent years, you and Sarah were joined by a new companion, Mark, played by George Watson. And that changed the dynamic again, that the two of you had obviously been travelling with the Doctor for a while, and there's suddenly this new person in the mix who's completely out of his depth. Did you enjoy that period that all of a sudden it kind of freshens things up a little bit? Yeah, well, you know that he's Peter's nephew. Oh, I didn't. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, Peter Davison's nephew, so that was quite funny. Mm. That day, look, I tell you, in a hundred years' time, they're still going to be doing Doctor Who. Oh, of course. <laughs> There'll be the, the bicentenary. Doctor Who will still be around. And there will be a Davison progeny or whatever in the show. Mm. That, that's just the way it's going to go. You can feel it. You know, it'll be like a dynasty. <laughs> have, have you got a daughter or a granddaughter who's itching to play Tegan? <laughs> or a niece? <laughs> no, no, I don't. Uh, yeah. I just think it's hilarious. You know, he was a nice young actor and it was lovely. Yeah, he was he, he nice man. 
a nice man mm. and a good actor. So yeah, it was good fun. Mm. Okay. A Roman story, didn't he? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which I think is always quite interesting in Doctor Who when you have two characters, two companions from the modern day, as it were, mixing someone from thousands of years earlier. Yeah. You get to kind of challenge your assumptions about the world. I mean, who hasn't played that game, you know, when you're out and you see something quite incredible? Or sometimes it's just something very ordinary, mm. you know, because I live in a town which has got a lot of listed buildings. Mm. I live in a listed building. And, um, and you look and you think, Crikey, you know, if one of the people could have from the past appeared now, what would they think? You know, with the mobile phones and, and computers and the internet and all of those kinds of things. So it's, you know, that's something that we all probably do. Mm. You know, sometimes when you're on a motorway and, you you know, because modern cities, the, the organisation that's involved in running a modern city, you know, you get a you get a really good image of it when when something goes wrong. I remember in London when something went wrong with the tube, mm. you've got a, a real sense of what goes into organising a modern city. Yeah. Know, really a phenomenal amount of organization and coordination and you just think oh you know if somebody from the roman era appeared now what would they mm. they would just be dazzled you know mm. and yes you're right because that's i mean i don't i think most of us have those kinds of thoughts don't we from time yeah. to time you're suddenly yeah. hit by you know i mean that's the thing about desert island discs you know what would we do if all of that was taken away mm. Well, to a certain extent, you find out yeah. in the stories where you go back in time. Well, and, and it's funny you should mention Desert Island Discs, because in the middle of that run, there's a couple of episodes where it seems like the Doctor has abandoned the three of you. And it was interesting to explore that dynamic. What would happen if the Doctor's companions were suddenly left on another planet, could never get home and have to fend for themselves? And I, that seemed like quite an interesting thing to do as an actor, to be suddenly given that scenario. Yeah, exactly. I can't remember how we resolved it, but yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think it's pretty obvious he came back. But but, yeah, um, <laughs> but in terms of, oh my goodness, what do we do without him? In a way, shows how resilient and how resourceful the companions are in his absence, which was a nice thing to explore too. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. It would be remiss of me to be talking to you today and not also ask you about your charity work. Project Motorhouse is, is um, it started out as a, as a project to save a building in Ramsgate and turn it into a mixed-use venue which could subsidise youth work. Nice. However, council, after we spent quite a lot of money, actually, on the premises, and we were supposed to be joint developers with the council, the council, like a lot of councils in the country, ran out of money and ended up selling the building to a developer. The youth work has continued, so we have... Um, a project called Fantastical Worlds, which was a, a photography and collage project for uh, year eights at a local school. And that is going into the Claw Learning Studio at the Turner Contemporary. Wow, that's great. As part of their, their Building Worlds um, installation. And then if you go to Ramsgate Radio, there are two projects there on Ramsgate Radio that are ours. One is called Harboring Life and the other's called Treasures. And that was with teenagers taking learning to take portraits of people and then mm. 
also interview them about aspects of their life or their, or their work. So that's two, you know, that's a couple of examples of the kinds of projects that we do. Mm. We are closing down oh. charity. We've been doing it for 12 years. And I ain't getting any younger. And <laughs> I will be helping another charity called the Ramsgate Arts Barge, um, but I won't have any responsibility. Mm. I'll be able to, you know, dip in and out rather than being responsible. Mm. And just the knowledge that that is happening has meant my sleep pattern has improved. <laughs> nice. Because I am a chronic worrier, you know. I, I, worry is my hobby. Oh, you for a hobby, Janet. Worry. <laughs> but obviously it's a part of the world that's important to you in terms of engaging with uh, local opportunities. Yeah, it is. And um, and we've done some really great work. And, you know, because we put, put kids together with professional artists and we pay the professional artists, you would automatically pay, consider paying an accountant and paying an mm. assistant and what have you. But people think, oh, an artist, no, 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 they We'll just get them in on a voluntary basis. No, no, no. So, you know, artists need to eat. Mm. Uh, we always got the money to pay them. Nice. So, yeah. And, but putting the kids together with professional artists is a really great way to, to enhance the things for both parties, actually. 40, Volumes 1 and 2, starring Peter Davison as The Fifth Doctor and Janet Fielding as Tegan Javanka, are available now from Big Finish Productions. You can find more info about all of Big Finish's audio releases by going to bigfinish.com, where their enormous range of Doctor Who audio dramas are available on CD and MP3 download. The various new adventures that I chatted to Janet about, including 40 Volumes 1 and 2, the mini-series of adventures featuring George Watkins as, as a Roman from antiquity who joins the TARDIS cast, and the very first adventure where Janet reprised her part of Tegan, The Gathering, which was released in 2006, are all available from Big Finish Productions. So if you go to their homepage, click on the link marked Collections, and choose the Fifth Doctor Collection, you can find all of these fantastic releases. Though it is worth noting that if you're going to buy The Gathering, it's actually the second half of the story, which begins with the previous release, Doctor Who The Reaping, starring Colin Baker and his companion Perry, as played by Nicola Bryant, which is also available as an MP3 download from Big Finish for the very reasonable price of £2.99. For more info about Janet Fielding's charity, Project Motorhouse, which helps teenagers from around the Ramsgate area get involved in art projects, please go to Project Motorhouse. Dot org dot uk. Today's clear spot, Doctor Who 1326 and 40-ish, was recorded, edited and presented by Alex Fitch and is a Panel Borders production. You can find a huge variety of other programmes I've made about Doctor Who, about cinema, about comic books and many other topics by going to my website www.panelborders.wordpress.com Sticking with the theme of of Doctor Who spin-offs and Janet Fielding's various performances as Tegan Javanka to play out here's the trailer for her first revival of the character in Doctor Who The Gathering which was released in 2006. Thanks for listening. This is my life. This is what I do. I work and I sleep and that's it. Huh. 
I thought you'd get You thought I'd what? Save the world? Feed all the starving kids in Africa? Be the new James Bond? What? So, that was the famous Tegan Javanka. Yeah. I'm still not sure about this. Stop worrying about it. Now, this doctor, is he going to be a problem? This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.